Hey, podcast listeners. This is a discussion between myself, TK Coleman, Steve Patterson, and Derek McGill, all of whom have been previous guests, TK, several times on this podcast. This is a discussion about Bitcoin. And we started flipping on the camera because we were always talking about this stuff privately, flipping on the camera and every couple of weeks doing these discussions just on Zoom and posting them up to YouTube for fun. And uh, they actually got a lot of traction, got a lot of views, a lot of interest. Several people asked me to put it in podcast format. Rather than spin up a new podcast, I decided to just post them right here on the feed for the uh, recently dormant Isaac Morehouse podcast. So what follows is a completely unedited, unfiltered discussion. You can also find it on YouTube if you want to see our wonderful faces between me, Steve Patterson, Derek McGill, TK Coleman on Bitcoin and Bitcoin related stuff. If you're not at all interested or familiar with crypto, there's some stuff that might be a little technical or a little inside baseball that might go over your head. But if I do say so, it's a pretty fun discussion anyway, and you might learn some things. Thanks. All right, Joshua Hensley, I appreciate you uh, being willing to, to talk to me. So I'll, I'll give you a little context. I've just noticed all of your uh, tweets and twitches, read several of your CoinGeek articles. I think I watched, I don't know if I watched a presentation you gave at CoinGeek. I watched a presentation you gave somewhere, I think, a while ago. And just over time, I'm just like, hey, this Joshua Hensley guy, I like him. He communicates clearly. He seems like a sharp guy. And uh, he seems to like liberty and not tyranny, which is like incredibly rare all of a sudden. So anyway, I I wanted to talk to you about BSV specifically and just, um, you know, hear your perspective. I know you're a lot more technical than I am, so uh, we probably won't be able to go into the the technical weeds, but um, I just wanted to pick your brain for a little bit. I figured I might as well hit record and uh, have some fun with it. TK may be joining us in a little bit, maybe some other guys. So uh, good to to meet you and have some FaceTime, man. Yep, same man. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you too. So, first, just tell me like you are a full-time developer. Is your full-time job doing development on BSV or related to BSV or is that just a hobby? It's I have several things going on at this time. So, um, sup man. Sup bro. <laughs> Welcome. I was just asking Josh what, what he does. Uh, like, what is his day job? Is he like a full-time BSV developer or what? And he's being vague already with his answer. <laughs> so I do stuff for CoinGeek, some writing and editing, but then I'm also working with Bitcoin Association. We're working on curriculum, like to help teach people about what's going on. And so, then, you're, like, so you're working on getting more adoption for the most part? Kind of, yeah, like indirectly. Okay. And, and then you're doing some, you're coding up some stuff for yourself as well. Like I see you, didn't you just like do an experimental, like retro gaming style, like skin for Twitch or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's kind of like you're doing some code, keeping your skills sharp, building some stuff that can be fun or useful. And then you're kind of acting as an advocate to try to get enterprises to see the benefits of building on BSV and writing articles about it. That too, but also just regular people because I also have a YouTube channel doing tutorials on how to code. That's right. Okay. That's where I've, I think I've seen a bunch of those. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, awesome. So I got to ask you, 
why, when did you decide to focus on BSV and why BSV? Like just, I don't know, is it a, well, you can tell me, I was going to say from a technical standpoint, is it an ideological standpoint, but you can give me the answer. Well, why in, in all senses of the word? So before, like in 2018, I started in all the crap coins, so like BTC and then Litecoin and Steam and all that stuff. But um, it was, you know, I looked into the whole propaganda stuff in the summer and I slowly over time, I moved over to BCH at the time. And when the fork happened, I was also seeing kind of the same thing happen with Craig. So that kind of maybe just start thinking about, okay, here's what's going on. And I went to the CoinGeek conference in November, 2018. And that was like the seal, the deal for me. And also coming from uh, working with enterprise clients as a consultant at the time, the scale thing is the biggest factor for me for why SV. So, I mean, if, if people are going to use it, we, we need lots of, um, you know, it's got to be able to, like, to handle lots right. of so TK, and you can jump in here anytime as well. You, TK, you know me well enough to know you may have to interrupt me if you want to talk. But uh, <laughs> when, when you say the propaganda thing, so do you mean like when you saw a lot of sort of coordinated or very mob-like vilification of like uh, Roger Ver or of big block people in general that had the opposite effect on you and you were like, something's fishy about this. And then when that was repeated where it was just like, the hate for Craig Wright seemed to get so disproportionate and became such a huge factor that it actually made you more curious about what he was saying than less. Is that fair? Okay. Okay. I had kind of a similar thing because I, you know, I've been uh, following and interested in and, and owned some Bitcoin since 2012, at least. Um, 2012 is the provably earliest I can say. So I don't want to say earlier because I could be wrong, but um, <laughs> It, well, I don't know. In a court of law, I could backdate some documents or something, I'm sure. But, <laughs> um, but I remember like as the, and I'm not technical, so I wasn't super tuned in to these early debates about block caps and scale. And I, I remember from talking with Steve Patterson that like scalability, there were some people that were concerned about that. And there was this temporary block cap that most people thought would get removed, but some people were arguing to keep it. And, you know, just seemed like, yeah, they'll just, they'll just, grow it like whatever just seems logical but then when all this stuff first started to come out my initial reaction was i heard nick sabo and i heard all these people just making this argument that well it really doesn't scale in a technical sense but it has social scale and that's okay and it doesn't and i was like i remember just being like well i guess i'll take his word for it technically but how come nobody like said that earlier cuz he was like you just build second layer solutions for to actually use it and I was like, well, I guess, but he doesn't seem to feel like that's a compromise. But to me, that, that's like a lot less exciting than what I originally got excited for. But okay, I'll just trust him. And then the more I started to see people just go crazy shitting on the few voices that were saying, no, you can raise the block size. And I think the first video I ever saw of Craig Wright, and I'd heard about his, his whole thing coming out and all that stuff and thought that was pretty wild and, and interesting, but I didn't follow it super closely or, or follow him. But he had like a talk in, uh, was it Arnhem or something? Where he just like gets up there and he's just like shitting on raspberry pies and all this stuff. And I heard it and I was like, okay, this is the guy that claimed to be Satoshi and it was all debunked and everybody thinks he's a joke and he's kind of crazy and incendiary. But like, 
what he's saying, somebody explain to me why it's wrong. And I never heard anyone explain to me why it was wrong. They just shit on him. And I shared it in a group. It was like a libertarian, crypto libertarian club. And this was right when ICOs were starting. So everyone thought they were genius because they were all making money, you know? Oh, I'm a libertarian early adopter. I'm getting rich. I'm getting <laughs> and I posted that and I was like, hey, the whole block debate thing, like, I know this guy's kind of crazy and discredited to most people, but like, just from a technical standpoint, this makes a lot of sense. And all I got was people saying he's shitty. And, and that's truly what caused me to start researching more, the more people were dismissive and outlandish. And so anyway, I didn't mean to go on a huge rant, but I can completely relate to uh, you know, the propaganda having the opposite effect, so to speak. Right. <clears throat> TK, you're just going to hey, sit there John. and smile. I, was, I paused to take a drink. Just so I could give you an opportunity, <laughs> I wanted to say something. Right. It took me that long. I got a lot to get more I can say and ask. <laughs> well, well, Josh, so the, the propaganda definitely made you interested, and that makes a ton of sense. But once you started researching, what was it? What was it you saw that made you able to overcome the propaganda? Because it's kept a lot of people away. A lot of people look at BSV and they just see scam, fraud, whatever it may be. Yeah, like there's no there's no value to maintaining that social burden if there's no there there, right? Right. Yeah. But yeah, you know, nothing lost, nothing gained, right? Like that's that's the whole thing with like these guys, um, like the core people who um, maybe they believe. Like I think there's been, there's lots of rumors that some of these guys, like uh, they really know about Craig and all this other stuff, but they can never admit it because their social reputation is... Um, too much, right? But that's like that's like that's like believing that you could never be better than what you are now, right? Because they're basically saying that I can't take this setback and I would never be able to get back to that point or get further. It's like, oh, I don't want to damage my reputation. But it's like, oh, okay, so you might as well just quit now, right? Because what what else are you gonna do? Um, yeah, that's a weird position where like you need something about the world out of your control to be true in order for you to succeed in life or survive. That's like, that's very dangerous, right? Like you can, you should be able to take bets and be wrong and right. still be able to, to survive and like needing people to believe a certain thing or needing a certain thing to be true or false uh, is dangerous. So, Oh yeah. So you found, so you found like once you look through the propaganda and as a, as a dev, as a technical guy, you were just like, this makes sense because it scales or what? So the, to answer both the questions, what TK asked too, um, the first with BCH was uh, when I saw it happen with Roger, like 2018, I just, I saw the hate and I was just thinking, well, what did this guy do? It's like, damn, man, like Jesus, you know, go on Reddit and they're just over and over. So I watched the interview with him and Ivan on tech and a lot of the stuff Roger said back then made lots of sense to me. And I'm just like, this is unjustified. So that's what started it. And um, in the middle, I just did more research and thinking what well, all this, all this stuff is crazier than real life. I mean, cause it's actually happening. Right. I mean, sorry, crazier than uh, like TV shows or movies. Um, but the nail in the coffin for me was due to be, you know, having some technical knowledge was uh, the lightning white paper. Like that's just a bunch of shit. It's just, it spins like, Two thirds of it's about like how to do refunds, which, you know, Bitcoin is not even, there's no refunds. It's just, you just send the money back. Okay. Did we lose Isaac? <laughs> Tell me about the, 
did I freeze up? Oh, there we go. Tell me about the bullshit in the white paper. Like, give me like a five minute or so layman or as close to layman. Um, what's your take? Why for, for someone who's maybe for someone who's thinks lightning might be a good idea, they're not sure. What is it about that white paper that made you call bullshit? Oh, uh, like refunds. Refunds is a huge issue with payments in general, like credit cards. It's just, it's a huge edge case that when people, when the merchants implement it, that they have to deal with because, you know, you got to coordinate with the banks. Okay. Did, does this person really need to get their money back? But with Bitcoin, there's no refunds, right? Like the only way to do a refund is just send from, instead of from A to B, send it from B to A, which to me is a huge feature. And it's actually talked about in the Bitcoin white paper. But Lightning spends like a, like a decent, like I would say maybe 30% of that paper is about how to deal with refunds because it's it, it, it needs to come up with something to solve it. But Bitcoin has it. Like there's no need to add stuff on, with Lightning to make refunds work, if that makes sense. So that was well, like the so, problem for me. Yeah, so let me, so let me play devil's advocate, I guess, you know, the, you see the inability to do refunds, um, as a feature of Bitcoin, but there are business cases where like you want the ability to do easy refunds. And the fact that Bitcoin, a transaction is permanent and you can't undo it might actually be a big inconvenience. So, you could argue, well, Lightning is trying to solve for the retail use case that actually wants, you know, um, refunds as a as an option. What what's your response to that? Mine would just be it's easier to just send it back, like, or you could have you could have something on top that's not like some uh, crazy mathematically impossible solution like Lightning is. To maybe you have some third party holding the funds and say, okay, after. X condition is met, just send the Bitcoins back. Yeah, it's, like. it's funny. The number of things like you can just solve that without code, right? Like you can have a retail insurance company that either holds the coins or insures process. Like the economic solution or the emergent solution, I think a lot of times the, the coder mentality, and I'm not trying to insult you because you're- no. Is like all problems can be solved with code. And that's the whole code is law idea which is like, we fixed it. No one needs, humans don't need to be trusted anymore. Well, it's like, well, yeah, that's bullshit. Someone still has to maintain the code and people have to run it. And if someone puts a gun to your head, it doesn't matter if it's your coins, your, your keys, your coins. If they're like, give me your keys or I kill you, your code won't save you. You know, like <laughs> you, can't, you, can, you can change the incentive, which is the genius of Bitcoin. It's, it's technical, but also economic. You can change the incentive to reduce the incentive of like bad things you want to happen, but it, you can't just say we coded away all human fealty. You know what I mean? Yeah, the, I, I 100% agree. I mean, especially with doing dev and stuff, I always like simple. Like I'll, I've, I see lots of devs try to do complex stuff. And I think that's what this lightning thing was, is these guys wanted to put their name, their flag in the ground. So they come up with this complex solution for something that's solved just by changing a parameter from one to eight or to 32 or to whatever. Now, Josh, you don't just believe that it's unnecessary. You, you made the statement it's mathematically impossible. Talk about that for a minute. What, the lightning? Yeah. You don't even think yeah. it's executable. Like, that's the other thing. It's like somehow Vitalik and these lightning guys are geniuses, but they reject basic computer science. Like if they actually went to school, they know this shit. Like 
the traveling salesman problem is a famous problem that lightning seeks to solve, but it's a computer science problem that has not been solved. So for lightning to work, it basically has to refute computer science. Now, what if, uh, I mean, again, I don't know the ins and outs of the problem, but uh, you know, when Bitcoin first came out, there were a lot of highly educated people in cryptography and computer science who were like, oh, you can't solve the Byzantine generals problem. It's impossible to solve. And like, that is the innovation. It solved it. So, you know, as someone who doesn't know the technical side of lightning, besides a few papers by uh, John Old Football and a few others that are, I think, pretty interesting and pretty damning from my knowledge, you know, if they're like, no, that's the innovation. We actually did solve the traveling salesman problem. Like, do you just not see proof of that? <laughs> no one's using it. Well, no, also, yeah, I mean, I don't know how many transactions they're doing a day, but um, the more they use it, like the worse it's going to be for them. Like the worse it'll scale and the more issues they'll have. But I don't. What, what? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to finish. Like, they, I mean, as far as I know, it's just not being used that much. So it might work today because of how few nodes or whatever are using it. It's such a weird, it's such a weird sales pitch that I found like from the outside, even before I dug in and was like, okay, I don't even think this is technically possible, or at least it hasn't been proven to me. I think Bitcoin doesn't need it. That seems silly to me that it would need it in the first place and all the other stuff. But just the sales pitch is like, hey, don't worry. We're going to make sure you can't use Bitcoin now because we're building something that's not ready yet, but it will be ready in the future. And then when you're like, oh, how's it work? Well, you know, it's here's this, here's the details over here. You can go look at them, and you look at them, and you're like, "Wait, so I have to have a channel open all the time to like receive funds and stuff? Why would I? Why would I do that? That sounds terrible." And there's like no, well, you know, it just, it just don't don't worry about. It. Like, there's no like, there's no debate about it. There's no like rigorous. How do we fix the Lightning Network? It's broken, at least not in a public setting. Like. It's just kind of like, hey, we got lightning, don't worry. And nobody's supposed to ask about its downfall, you know, down, shortcomings and the fact that it's been 18 months away for five years. You know what I mean? Um, what, what was it that made you, because I can totally get, okay, big blocks make sense. You see people vilifying Roger Ver and whatnot, and this seems irrational and it, and it, it leads you to the big block side. Where was it in the BCH-BSV split? What was it there that made you say, Hey, I'm going this way, especially because I can tell, like, you seem to me like a pretty libertarian guy. You're, a, you're an advocate of free markets and you seem pretty principled in that regard. And BCH definitely has adopted that language anyway. I would say more. The community is more kind of openly libertarian. Roger Ver certainly. And BSV, since Craig Wright kind of started changing his tone to be a lot more like law governance, we will put you in prison a lot of his followers are just like, you know, everything illegal is immoral and all this crazy shit. So like on its surface to a libertarian, BCH looks more attractive. And that certainly was true for me. What was it for you that made you decide that BSV is the one you want to go with? So at the time, like when the fir fork first happened, I didn't split my coins, but I didn't do it until after I went to that CoinGeek conference. But up until then, I, I think I probably only interacted with maybe eight other humans in real life about BCH at all. So when I was on Reddit and yours and memo and stuff, and I saw that stuff happening, I was kind of like in my own world, right? So I felt like a crazy person 
for thinking that, you know, at the time for supporting like a lot of the stuff that Craig was saying. And honestly, I was kind of shocked that Roger didn't like at the time go with him. I was, I was pretty surprised about that. Um, but the biggest thing for me uh, was the scale part. And also Craig hadn't started this whole law of rhetoric back then either. So um, there wasn't that kind of um, political aspect to it back then. But I mean, even still now with his law thing, I mean, who knows why he's doing it? I don't agree with all of it. But again, what keeps me is the scale part is that um, as time goes on, right? Like if, if, if this thing is going to need to be able to handle lots of people, it, it's just got to, it can't have the same issues that BTC did. Because um, I think that one thing that gets lost, especially with newer people coming in, is BTC, like Bitcoin in, in 2016, Microsoft and Steam, like those are two huge companies. They were accepting it and then they stopped, right? That's adoption, right? So people keep saying, oh, retail is never going to happen. Shit, it happened, but the devs messed it up, you know? So that's, to me, that's the most important thing. So like if that happens again, this time... They'll, the people that come in won't be told, oh, go away. You're putting too much transactions on. It'll be, oh, please come. And the fees will be low. Yeah, it, it kind of gets to a point where it's like scale is everything. Like if you can't handle scale, it doesn't really matter what you're trying to do because it'll either just be on a really small scale or it will go away altogether. Um, and there's something interesting too. Like I hate all of Craig's like rhetoric about law and blah, 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 blah. Like to me, it's kind of like the opposite end of the myth of the rule of code. It's the myth of the rule of law. Like laws written on paper don't guarantee any kind of justice either. Courts don't either. We all know that they're corrupt, they're corruptible. But even though I dislike the rhetoric, he's actually in a way he's correct. He's just like technically describing the reality by like, you guys are wrong. Code is not law. Like laws can overturn these things. Humans are still involved. And that's an uncomfortable reality because we want Bitcoin to be completely like the laws of physics prevent it from ever being co-opted by governments. And that's a great dream, but it's not the reality. And like being reminded of that, even though I wish it was the reality, like Craig seems to be happy it's not the reality. I'm not happy it's not the reality, but I'd rather deal with it as the reality because it's the truth, you know, like you can't just wish it away. Um, but I want to ask you, you said, you said you were surprised that Roger did not go with Craig as the two conversations started to emerge in BCH. Why were you surprised and why do you think he ended up going the way he did? Because the changes that were added in order to split from the BCH side were definitely anti-competitive changes in my view. And Ryan at the time laid out perfectly why these are economic fallacies and Roger just never responded. I was shocked by that. To me, when I saw that, I think, okay, there must be something else going on here. Um, what, what changes? The DSV and the C Can canonical transaction ordering thing. Okay, T tell me why those are uh, anti-competitive. Mm -hmm. I, I remember I dove into the C tour a bit, and to the best of my knowledge, I just remember thinking, I don't understand. It doesn't seem necessary to me, but I didn't really, I couldn't really pick up on anything that made it seem horribly bad, uh, it just seemed useless. What, what is it about those that you would say are anti-competitive? 
Lucitor is like at the protocol level changing the ordering to it's 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 like the belief that the devs need to make something at the fundamental level of the ledger in order to scale it instead of just leaving that up to the market and the miners to just either hire software developers, customize their clients, whatever, to be able to bust out big blocks, right? I mean, you know, Omri, um, I think he goes, he's a great example of one of these guys that just wants to put their flag in the ground to say, hey, I, I, my name is on this, I did this, versus, because like I said, changing a parameter, you know, there's no glory in changing one line of code from one to 32. There's lots of glory in saying, I did CTOR, or I put in DSV. Um, and then DSV, uh, Ryan's got a great video on he, how he explains it. But it's basically saying an opcode that's very expensive. This DSV is very expensive, but the pricing on fees is uh, per byte, right? And DSV would have made an opcode that should, I think it's actually several megabytes if you try to implement it, um, which would be a huge fee, right? That'd be a huge fee for a miner, but it's making it one Satoshi. <laughs> so you're asking this miner to do this lots of work, but you're only making them pay one Satoshi. So it kind of comes the same idea of trying to optimize the code at the very base level of the protocol for the particular use case that you favor and that you want to win out in the market instead of letting miners decide how they're going to handle transaction ordering. Yeah. You know, the ways that if they want to say, I will process these types of, um, you know, blocks for a lower fee. Hey, I'll do yeah. your op code for a cheaper, your DSV for a cheaper fee. Like they can do that if they want to. But the, the, the central planning fallacy, essentially, exactly. of choosing that. You know, it's funny. And, and to me, those debates were a little technical, but I kind of was like, they just seemed unnecessary. They seemed like coders doing too much that they didn't need to do. But there was like a conspiratorial element. Like, it kind of seems like Amari kind of has like a bit of a power trip or he's trying to, but that was kind of like, yeah, I don't want to act in bed. Let's just be char charitable assumption. Well, then it turns out the conspiracies were completely true because now he's just transparently like, hey, I want to code in a minor tax that goes to me and my friends. So it's like, it's like, oh crap. I, I got to imagine, I'm just speculating. I got to imagine Roger feels like maybe he picked the wrong, <laughs> he picked the wrong fork just with what's happened with that, with that shit, you know, the, the, the minor tax proposal. <laughs> well, Josh, you alluded to thinking something else had to be going on based on the fact that he didn't respond to, to those arguments. What do you think was going on? What do you think drove his decision? Where do you think he is now? And, and what are the prospects of him eventually coming over to the SV side in your, in your, your opinion? I, like at the time, it's hard to say. I think now we see the, how obvious, like how divided that him and someone like Craig and Calvin are in terms of political ideology. So like I mentioned how back then it wasn't so clear, but those two, I mean, they were friends, right? And now they're not. Well, who knows? Who knows if they still talk or not? Um, but I just think it's funny. I mean, like now it's obvious, right? It's obvious that they are like, even though they both follow the same kind of political thought, they're like on opposite ends within that grouping, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like that's clear. But I think maybe between those two back then, maybe it was clear to them, but not to the public. So maybe it was always there. And then that, this uh, split just made, and also um, the guys around Roger, um, they're telling him, Hey, do, 
uh, you know, to accept these ABC changes. And then Jihan, Jihan's a big part of it too. I mean, at the time they had, they were still relevant, right? I mean, they had like a million BCH at one time. So Roger probably was probably freaking out. It's like, am I going to go with these in-chain guys and this uh, fake Toshi or am I going to go with my boy Jihan who's been with me since the first four? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't remember at what point in the chronology, the infamous, uh, I will sue you, I will bankrupt you. But like, to me, there was still a chance at that point. And Craig just like preemptively burned all these bridges. Like, (laughs) I mean, maybe he knew something I don't behind the scenes, but I'm just sitting here as like a fan of just free market, big block Bitcoin, wanting it to succeed. Just being like, no, no, I want. I want you guys to stay no. together <laughs> like the, like the neglected child of parents are getting to yeah. like here. Um, okay. So let, let's talk Craig, right? Because you know, you're developing on BSV and you're, you're working with the Bitcoin association, which I know Jimmy uh, Wynn is involved with and he's, he's, you know, close to and chain and Craig as well. And Craig's just a big looming personality in BSV and whether we like it or not, it's true. Do you feel that that is like a looming liability? Like the fact that for all I know, he could end up in prison or he could win his court case and end up like being granted legal rights to a million BSV coins or there's just so many, there's a lot of uncertainty around this guy and a lot of kind of bombast and Kelvin as well. Do you see that as like a risk factor in your equation for moving forward with trying to build on BSV or do you just think it's totally irrelevant? For me, no, it's not. I just, I just think that the value proposition is just too much there. Like, I mean, I, I've, I've quit my, my job to go all in on this and I just, I have so much fun working on it every day. Um, and then I know someone else who's very close to me who's, who wants to stay anonymous, but they, they have a quote. They're like, I don't care about BSV. I don't care about Bitcoin. I don't care about Craig Wright. This just gives me what I'll need to build my, my product, right? And I think that menta- type of mentality will kind of win out because it's productive, right? It, 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 that's actually stuff being added. Um, to other people, this might be an issue, right? I mean, Calvin and Craig are definitely controversial. Um, and I definitely see the issues with Craig with the law stuff. With that said, I've learned so much from him. Like I've never heard anyone else talk about Bitcoin the way he does. And I think it's, it's really a sign of someone can actually listen to him and criticize him from both sides. Because I, I mean, I'll criticize Craig too, right? I mean, I've learned a lot about stuff from him, but you know, all these threats and stuff, they've never really come, come to anything. So I've just learned to you know, disregard that. But does that invalidate all his teachings? No, right? So, you know, I think there's a kind of a balance there. Okay, the, go ahead, TK. Okay, hold up. So, I, I, I gosh, I, I, I got a couple, but I'll do one at a time. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to mute my mic for a while and let you guys have at it. All right, yeah, let, let me have a couple of correct questions here. So, I know that it's not a problem for you because you just want to build on it and it gives you what you need. But are you concerned about the possibility that it could be a big enough problem for enough people? to where that actually infringes on your freedom to be able to do what you want to do. I mean, so let's just take the scenario that he does something really crazy and ends up in jail or 
you know, like like some people are speculating about today, he dumps a bunch of BSV and BSV only. These are things that could affect your ability to do your projects. You're not worried about that? And if not, why? So that question is backed by the idea that I need the BSV price to be high to build. Would you agree with that? Well, not necessarily. I, I get what you're saying. Like he could do some things that would crash the BSV price and ruin the day for speculators. And I think what you want to say is what, I, what I'm doing just requires the protocol to be locked down and for the network to be a place where I can build. I got you on that. But there's like what he says is still ambiguous enough and weird enough to where it's almost like we don't even know what's going to happen there. Am, am, am I like, like, am what I if, like what if he came to you and said, hey, I don't like the way you're building on this and I have a patent on everything. Uh, so you had to stop. Like, we, we I don't know, that kind of shit is just, it's weird. It's like an unknown. We, sh- we should get into patents because I have, I have really strong opinions on this. Um, the more and more I think about patents, I just, I can't, I don't get it. Like, I understand why in the world we live in, they exist, right? But if you think about Bitcoin as a single ledger, right? Let's say that someone came up with some awesome solution to use one of in-chain's patents, right? That if they deploy it on BSV, will generate tons of transactions. And if it's popular enough, it'll make the price go up, right? What is in-chain going to do? You, you know what I mean? What are they going to do? They're going to say, no, don't do that. They can't. I mean, they, might, they might say, pay us a royalty or else you can't do it. But like their incentive is to not do that because they would get so much from the price going up or from the network effect. Like they, to me, that's why I so like, I, I think it's kind of more defensive. I don't know if they'll ever be offensive with these patents. I, I don't know. But yeah. I just, the more and more I think about it playing out in real life is I, like they can't stop anyone who's actually using the ledger to do something valuable. They can't interfere with that. Well, it seems to be more like a, 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 pr- a proposed Ethereum killer, right? Something like that. Yeah. So you look at the incentives they face and say, given the disincentive to enforce these patents, I'm, I'm going to treat those as a very low probability risk. Within the chain. Yeah. Now, if okay. you're on EOS or something, okay. So you think they're going to come after people on other chains who are, who are using things? I, I would think that's the whole point, but yeah. I don't Yeah. Yeah. But that's why as a builder, you have security because you, you don't believe that in spite of all the craziness surrounding Craig, that he'll, he'll ever have the incentives to shut down the kind of activity that you're in. Oh, no, no. Like they, it, it would be, that would not be good for them. I mean, they used to mine too. So like, I know they're holding bitcoins, right? So, do they want those? Do they want the value of those bitcoins to go up or down? Right. right. That's, that's the question that it comes down to. And then I just uh, let me get one more Craig question, and I'll shut up. Yeah, yeah, dude, keep going. <laughs> you you said that I think you said no one understands Bitcoin like him, or no one has taught you the things that that he's taught you. This is a statement I've heard a lot, and every time I've heard this statement said. I've heard the critics of Craig be like, like what, for instance? And then the conversation just like somehow ends with like insults being hurled. Yeah, I was going to ask that too, because Steve Patterson makes a big deal about this. Like, what are you learning? Like conceptual yeah. Bitcoin knowledge or like specific technical knowledge? Both. Like, give us some examples. Um, he's wrote a lot about like 
how you can manage outputs and things like that. And then with it, with taxation. So like his, his medium thing is just gold. Like there's, I was going through it to like curate some of his stuff uh, last month. And it's just, there's so much good stuff out there that I think if people took that stuff and ran with it and made a business, he basically laid out how you do it. It's just someone needs to come and implement it. Right. Like he talked about how you could um, encrypt, do uh, encryption for videos on chain and then run some platform off that and let, you know, where people can own their data and stuff. I think um, uh, tokenize is doing, is leveraging some of that stuff. Um, but like a little small one that I never even thought about is like, if you're, if you're a miner or you work for a mining company, you never actually have to pay fees. Like, because if you win the block, you could just set, cause you're, you're, you're the one that says, okay, this block is valid, right? You could just say, all my transactions are zero fee. And you know, process them. And I never like, I, mind blown. I'm like, wow, I, I never thought about that. So the, you know, the easier one for me is this guy knows some things about Bitcoin, what it is, what it can be, what's possible with it that other people don't. And I think even critics have to admit there's something there. Like when he claimed it was touring complete and everybody said that's stupid and like, well, it actually is if you, you know, run it through this way. And, and there's some some ways that he describes in you know sort of in the conceptual sense Bitcoin that you don't hear from anyone else that that like turn out to be right and valuable. The dig that I hear and I can't comment on this because I'm not technical myself is like that he can't code you know hello world for example that like if he sat down he can tell you all the ideas from a high level of what you can do and what's possible. But if he sat down to code it himself, he like can't code his way out of a wet paper bag. And I don't like, to me, that doesn't necessarily matter, but it, it could matter. I mean, it can matter to him reputationally if he's claiming that he can code or whatever else, but like, it doesn't matter that much to me, but I'm just curious your take on, you know, that sort of that level of granularity. Like, do you have evidence that he actually is a good coder himself? or that he just kind of at a high level understands things about the network? Well, I'm pretty sure he can code because he used to, there's like a video out there of him teaching C-sharp or something, uh, doing a lecture at a university. So I, I don't think he'd be able to get that position if he couldn't code at all. But um, also, um, like Steve in my- Patterson would definitely object to that. <laughs> in, in my, <laughs> in, I've, had uh, some, I've had some professors that were, you know, teaching English and could barely write or speak. So I guess it is possible. <laughs> Um, the other part is, um, in like in the work I used to do, we, we had, there's this role called solution architect and they were usually the guy that were, they were fairly high ranking on a project and their role would be to kind of map out how the whole implementation is going to go for the whole project. Maybe it's a year long, like, okay, you know, X is going to do this, Y is going to do this, but these guys were not developers, right? But they knew they understood the system at such a level to where they could make decisions that a low level developer couldn't. So, you know, this is a common thing, like in the software industry, where you have someone we call them with lots of functional knowledge who know a lot about how systems work, but they can't actually implement it. Like if they were asked, hey, go actually code this, they couldn't do it. But they know way more about the uh, product than, say, the dev. The dev might know how to code it, but they don't know like the, you know, the actual use cases at the you know, business or the high level to be able to do it. 
So this this is kind of a common thing that you know get gets rejected by the sock puppets and uh, on Reddit and Twitter, right? Um, to kind of call out someone for not knowing their stuff. I know that that always makes me wonder. Like, okay, let's say Craig was part of Satoshi. I mean, based on his current writing, somebody else was either writing or copy editing the hell out of the white paper. And then on the coding side, it seems like somebody else was probably doing some of the some of the code as well. Uh, you you willing to give any thoughts or speculation on the mystery of Satoshi? I mean, I, it's probable that someone. I mean, we know someone else was involved, right? Um, we just don't. The it's convenient that today, um, you know, that both of those guys are dead. So we can't ask them or, you know, figure out who who did what. Um, but like, I think another thing with Craig is um, he, a lot of people criticize him for changing like his tone over time. But um, I pointed this out in some, in one of the other uh, interviews I did with the guys from uh, the, In the Box, that Daniel, Daniel Krawitz, he did a video where he said something like, Craig's constantly learning about Bitcoin too, right? And I know I am, and I know lots of other people are. But if you look at it from that way, it makes a lot more sense why his kind of stuff has changed over time. Because, yeah, just because he made the thing doesn't mean that he fully understood. Like, script wasn't in the white paper, right? But now, just now, in 2020, we're finally doing stuff with it. So it took 11 years after uh, it was built for people to actually start using something that was there. Yeah, you know, I have a I have a lot of sympathy for that, not just in the very surface level way of like, you know, hey, people's opinions change over time, but even just understanding what it is you're working with or what it is that you built. So, you know, I've I've started companies and um it's very it's not uncommon with both of my companies has been a couple years in, what I think the company is is very different from when I started. And I start to see like, oh, this is so much more than this. It's actually this other thing. And then, you know, for six month periods, I'll get fixated on something where I'm like, this is what the company really is. It's this. And then six months later, I'll be like, no, that wasn't quite right. It's like a little bit more like this. Meanwhile, the company's running and it's succeeding and it's helping customers even while I'm still trying to grapple with what it is. Like a lot of founders will tell you it's much easier to build a company than to describe it. Uh, and like your understanding of the fundamental nature. So I can, I can sympathize with, with that. One thing you said a while ago, I thought was interesting that you and a, and a friend who shall remain nameless. Um, and I know you're not the only one because I've come across others are like, I don't give a shit about Craig, Wright. I don't give a shit about BSV. I don't even give a shit about Bitcoin or crypto in general. I just like what I can build on this technology. And I think one of the benefits, and I, I'm not going to say that this is like some intended 3D, 7D chess thing, but one of the potential benefits of Craig Wright being so bombastic and so easy to dismiss as a fraud is that it's kind of like this idiot test. Like, yes, you only end up with two kind of people in BSV, either like total cultists who just love everything Craig says, which, you know, it's just kind of whatever, or people who are like, literally only care about the best technology because why else would they be there and be willing to put up with all that suffering and silliness unless there's really something good there? And it, it just results in an interesting 
an interesting filtration mechanism where you kind of have a top layer of easily identifiable people who have, you know, Craig Wright in their avatar on Twitter that just seems silly. And you <laughs> just think that's everything that BSV is. But anybody who's gone beyond that and who is still working on BSV, they tend to be totally agnostic about Craig, about the coin itself, and just totally trying to build great technology, which I think is a great filter for high quality talent. Yeah, for sure. TK, you had a question you wanted to ask about $5 BSV. $5 BSV, man. So (laughs) there's this concept I've been trying to wrap my mind around. There's this debate I've been seeing in BSV. Ari has had it with a number of people. And the idea is that the, the 21 million Bitcoins are not really needed. That, that there's something about these contracts that, that these mining contracts where they're paid in fiat that allows you to settle these payments with a small amount of Bitcoin. And, and, and so the idea is that not only can Bitcoin continue to be successful if it's only worth $5 a coin, but that we're probably not going to see any of these moon scenarios where it's like $10,000 BSV or whatever, because that's all based on an old school, outdated paradigm that, that, that you you know what I'm talking about. Can you explain what the foundations of that is and and let me know what you think? Yeah. Can you, let me just rephrase that. Josh, can you explain both my question and your answer to us? No. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, real quick, I had this uh, philosophy (laughs) professor in college he was just so brilliant that people would ask him questions that meant absolutely nothing, but he was so smart. He would reconstruct their question into something <laughs> meaningful, answer it and say, does that help? And then people would be like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was asking. Yeah. So I need you to do that for me. <laughs> that, that whole argument is like that. You, I think you mentioned that that's the old paradigm. That, that whole argument is the old paradigm, right? It's like still thinking that, People would prefer to use fiat when there's a much more efficient uh, system. Now, I don't. I don't think fiat's just going to die, but I. I think. I mean, you know, the the crypto anarchists or core people, they always say, "Yeah, there's 21 million Bitcoin, so demand go up, number go up." Right? Uh, That's true to an extent, right? Like, if there's only so many, and people really think they need it to use it to get stuff, then yeah, of course, that's going to make the price rise. Um, This settlement thing, like, I think some people would do it, but it's not going to be, I don't think it'll be the norm because it just doesn't make sense, right? Like, if I need Bitcoin to pay for transaction fees, why wouldn't I just use that? Yeah, sure. If I I don't want to touch it, I could make a deal with the miner to just use the ledger and pay them off chain. Sure, I could do that. But the miner still gets paid in Bitcoin. That's never going to change, right? So you believe so you believe that BSV is needed then? Oh yeah. Yeah. You can't I, I I'm tired of people trying to tell me that they can use credit cards and payment. I mean, maybe in other countries they have better payment systems, but in America it's still shit, right? Like credit cards are terrible. If I want to use PayPal, it still costs too much. Like I can't you can't do penny transactions. You just can't. You cannot do it with any other payment system besides Bitcoin. So that's interesting. So you know, BSV and BCH having a, a shared origin, it was all about, hey, we're trying to make cheap, fast, global scale transactions. And we want to re-enable all these opcodes to let Bitcoin be everything that it can possibly be. And those are both kind of a nice marriage. 
And then with the split, it kind of seems that BCH retained the, we want to replace cash. We want you to buy and sell stuff with it. We want to be a currency. And BSV, I have not heard anyone like publicly say that's a bad idea, but they've moved so much towards the, this is a new data structure for the internet. And maybe we'll talk about the MetaNet enterprise adoption, et cetera, that the money use case is basically not talked about at all. And so I'm curious if you think the money use case is just out the window and it's never going to be money, it's going to be a data structure. Or if you think, no, it will be money, but this is the way to make it so widely usable and so valued as a utility that it makes sense to use it as money. I think this whole data structure enterprise thing is more or less like propaganda to like separate from other chains. Um, I do think there's some validity to it, but the way I look at it is because the damage that the core people did in terms of it being a payment, that to, this is just my opinion. What's going to drive the adoption is going to be something like a crypto kitties, but that actually works, right? <laughs> some, some consumer app where people are like, oh shit, this is cool, but it's only possible using micropayments, right? I think that's what's going to do it. And then people will come in and say, oh, this thing is actually valuable. And then I think you'll have incentives for maybe merchants to start taking it again. Because like right now, sure, I could have the, the gall to go to some merchant here, you know, if, if they actually have the balls to open their store up and say, hey, uh, you want to take Bitcoin? Why would they? There's no incentive for them to do it, right? Because there's no like ecosystem. But like as more services get built for where they can use it, maybe they want to play some crypto kitties game on Bitcoin. Okay, yes, please give me Bitcoin, right? So I, I just, I just, I don't, I think this focus is kind of being pushed by the wayside because of like a discernment to like uh, to say, oh, MetaNet, data structure, enterprise to like uh, separate SV from the other chain. But yes, I think that's valid. But um, I think just the cash thing will come naturally because it's just merchants to me don't have an incentive to take it right now. Yeah. So, so you actually think that uh, consumer adoption will be the big, the bigger driver um, rather than enterprise level adoption? I'm thinking at this point, yes. Uh, I, I, I would, I, my answer would have been different maybe five months ago. But Why? Because you've been out there talking to enterprises and none of them want to use it? <laughs> um, what, I saw a bit of that with my company, but, um, you know, previously, but the more and more I think about it, like a lot of these companies are so big and they're so stuck in their old ways. Like it's going to take forever for them to make a decision. So they're like, not going to be the first mover, right? Nobody got fired buying an IBM. Yeah, exactly. So like, I think it's going to be like some of these smaller, leaner companies that just get stuff done. They're going to be, oh, fuck it. We'll just do it. And then they just go. And, and then you see something be built. Hmm. What, what, speaking to that point, I mean, there, there's been all this talk lately about transaction processing, right? And, oh, and, and using that language to create that distinction and how it's going to be all about transaction volume. But Isaac and I have talked about this before. Building out the biggest mall in the world isn't the same thing as actually getting businesses to come, you know, set up shop. It's better to have a mall that's so busy that people can't come because there's not a parking spot than a giant mall that's empty. Yes, 100% agree. Yes. So what's your take on this as we look forward to 2020, like in terms of like, do you see this something happening relatively soon? Like, like getting any real adoption? Or do you think this is like a 10, 20 year battle? Because they're talking like it's got to happen now. At least Calvin is. I mean, we, I, 
like go, I think the theme kind of one of the themes earlier was you know developers trying to put their flag in the ground. Like we we still have too much of that, man. Like we got lots of people building stuff that no one wants to use. We need people building stuff that's actually gonna make money, right? Like if you release an app, it needs to be making money from the first day. It because then you have an incentive to build it up, right? Like if if you could take micro payments, if you could take cents from anyone, most people have pennies, right? I mean, you know, like if, if you could get them to be sending you money through your service, like the volume, I mean, you know, this is more economic stuff, like uh, what is velocity of money, right? We get more of that than the value of the coin increases. So if we get people building stuff that people would actually give them their Bitcoin for, that's when we'll start seeing stuff move forward. But we're not seeing any of that right now. I mean, Twitch is doing it. Um, you got some other guys that are doing it, but we need more of that, right? And hopefully we'll start seeing some of this stuff come out this year. But, um, you know, I, don't, I, think, I think that the Genesis upgrade is kind of like a shell shock. It's like, oh shit, we can do all this cool stuff, but we don't have any dev tools to actually do it. So we're still in this little weird limbo where, People are building those type of tools to be able to take advantage to use the stuff. And then hopefully we'll start seeing people stop thinking I need to build like PayPal or, you know, some app that doesn't make sense and like use the micropayment feature. Um, I, I will leave alone the velocity of money comment. I was going to, I was going to jump on that because I, I, I think, I think I know what you mean and, and I'll be charitable and assume that you're not. <laughs> you're not claiming that the velocity of money is what gives it its value, but there, no. but there is something in the utility of money and the fact that it's liquid and it's redeemable um, matters for its demand, right? It has to be ultimately usable at some sense. But the, you know, the thing with the consumer apps, that's a, that's a big challenge and has been to this point. And Twitch probably gets the closest that I've seen yet um, is well, one, BSV is almost impossible to get with fiat, like just to obtain some, if you're a newbie person, it's like really, really freaking hard to do. And if you're in the US, you got to like get on some weird thing and use a, use a VPN to hide where you're, whatever. It's like, it's just crazy. So to get on one of these apps, you can't just start using it for the most part. Now, some of them are doing something like crediting you with 10 cents or something to get started, which I think is a great onboarding. But the other thing is like, unless this is an app that I just want to use in and of its own right, because it's interesting and valuable to me. And there's something inherent in what the app does that it must be done on BSV. Otherwise, it couldn't happen at all. If those two criteria are met, you've got something that can bootstrap the network. If not, if I don't absolutely want to use the app in and of itself, not just because I think it's cool that it's on BSV, then you're not going to get enough people. And if you can build it easier or just as easy without BSV, then you're not going to get the adoption either. And so like that, those are real, that's really hard. And I think it's, it's requiring a new level of imagination because a lot of us can think of like in the future when there's the meta net and all of us own data individually, and then we can decide who gets access and the whole internet's restructured. We can imagine all these things that are only possible on BSV and that's cool. And I think it'd be cool if we get there. I don't know if we will, but right now, it's easy to only think of business models that we already have seen before and we've already seen those before. So by definition, they don't necessitate BSV. And so it's like, it's like a new, it's like it requires a bunch of new conceptual breakthroughs to, to like see 
what is now possible only on BSV and nowhere else. And I think that's going to be the game changer to see what, what are those and are they enterprise? Are they consumer? Who, where are those going to take place? You know? Right. Yeah. I think, I think something like crypto kitties is a great example. Like I think that there is a huge market for something like that, but like the ability to take those and maybe use them in other apps, but like easily, I think that's going to be kind of an example of what I'm talking about. So like CryptoKitties to me seems like a bet, like I think of it as like, well, it's just kind of this weird, silly novelty that only fans of Ethereum would use. Like what normal person has a demand for a CryptoKitty? But maybe if you're saying, hey, in-game purchases that would be unfeasible because of transaction fees with a credit card or dollars where you're, you know, you're, you know, you're earning tokens or buying something and you can exchange it not just in a single game, but you can take that with you and you can take your your weapons from World of Warcraft and use them in Fortnite or whatever. Like there, I, I think I can start to see where you're going with that. Yes, exactly what you just said. <clears throat> so you're seeing a lot of um, someone should gamers rebuild talking. Minecraft on BSV. I can imagine a BSV Minecraft. Sorry, go ahead, TK. No, no, no. I, that's exactly where I wanted to take it. Uh, what, what, what do you see when you look ahead for the future of gaming in BSV? I mean, yeah, like, uh, if you, have you guys played Pokemon? Did you play as kids? Did you I still play it? No. We're too, we're too old, man. Really? You guys are my age, right? I'm, thir- I'm 36 and TK's like 60. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. He, he never sp- says his age, so no one actually knows. Oh, but uh, anyway, you know, it came out in like 95 or whatever. And, you know, they're still going strong. I think there's been eight main games. And one of the issues that they've tried to solve is, well, the the encyclopedia is called the Pokedex. It's like, it just grows, right? At first it was 150 with the first game. And now it's up to almost a thousand, right? But fans wanted to be able to say, hey, I had these in the first game. Why can't I put them in the eighth game? Right. So Nintendo has created like this Band-Aid solution for it, but it's all on like their servers and you have to use their platform. You have to pay them for their service. But, like if you really think about it, why couldn't I just export those to a shared ledger and then import to any other game? As long as the game just can translate it and import it. Right. So like right there, I already like there's so many things that I see like the big companies trying to solve that I know that Bitcoin can solve. And the fact that I know that they're trying to solve this problem to me validates that this is something that's valuable. Yeah, it's uh, Nintendo's a, f- a good example of the incumbent advantage and why if you're building something new, it has to be like not just a little better, but like four or five, ten times better. Nintendo, somehow they're still in business. The worst user experience of my entire life has been my kids, we have a Wii and a switch, or I don't remember which one it is, one of them, trying to, like, they wanted to download a game, and it required setting up a Nintendo account, and then me setting up a parental account, and then logging into some parental controls thing, and then loading up some credit with some credit card, and then the the process was literally about the most painful UI onboarding experience I have ever had in my entire life, and I'm like, when you're the incumbent, you can get away with this, right? Like it's, it's incredible, but there's so much, there's so much opportunity there for, for improvement. I, I'd love to see some of those, 
novel use cases. All right, I got I got one final question, and TK, I want you to have uh, the final final question. Fair. Cool. Okay, we booked an hour. I want to I want to respect that because you got you know you got things to code. Um, give me the libertarian case for BSV. Mm. Forget the technical side. Let's just assume the tech works mm-hmm. and it works good enough, or it's worth pursuing. If there's somebody out there who's really passionate about free markets and you know free individuals, what's your case to them for why they should get excited about BSV? So to me, um, I think Unrider has talked about this in the past about the, it's, it's kind of technical, but the UTXO model, right? So like there's technically the, the amount of how you can pay people with a single transaction is only capped by the protocol, right? So in theory, you could pay 900 people in a single Bitcoin transaction, right? But if you start, and this goes back to the velocity thing I was talking about. If you if you have someone that can build an app where they take 100 Satoshi cuts or something, right? They could just build something without needing lots of capital investment. With like someone who doesn't have a lot of resources could just build a site. They could even deploy it on the chain and then start making money from it, right? Like that's something that they own. Someone has to come through their site and use and that micropayment capabilities to be able to just go out to people like instantly. To me, that is kind of like the biggest, that's the big draw for me. Like the potential I see there is something that we haven't seen before. And and like it does, the location is not bound, right? Like if someone codes it in Africa, their coworkers on, this, on the five other continents that we live on could get paid in one transaction. Uh, Twitch is kind of doing this where like, like, like me, for example, every transaction on that retro Twitch, there's at least four outputs. Some goes to Twitch, some goes to me, some goes to whoever posted it, for example, right? And like that, I just, I think when people see their balance go up, you know, I think that's a, no matter how small it is, I think that's a big mental thing that keeps you motivation to keep driving and pushing forward. That's really cool that like you can almost, you own shares in your personal influence on the internet, right? So like if you started a meme or an idea that blows up, you're getting little tiny cuts every time it's shared, or even if you didn't start it, but you noticed it and shared it yourself and then it was reshared. And there's something cool about that and just micro payments themselves as the killer app. I mean, that is, that is the one thing no other technology can do is that hundredths of a cent level micro transactions um, and so that's, I, I think that's an exciting, exciting use case. All right. TK was going to have the last question, but since Derek decided to just join us, TK can ask a question and Derek can get one in too. All right. Oh, can, you hear me? can you guys hear me? Yes, yep. We yeah. got you. Sorry. I'm late. <laughs> no, it's okay. Just, just 56 minutes late. No big deal. Did I, did I miss like the secret to everything? You yeah. missed all of it. And, um, I'm only going to post a version with all the secrets removed. Publicly. <laughs> just just these last two minutes <laughs> <laughs> well here's what i'll do there was an all-star game where uh iverson got more vo- votes than jordan and so he was a starter but uh, as they called his name iverson just like deferred to mj and was like hey man you deserve this spot i was gonna get the last <laughs> question but i'm gonna sit back like ai no, you ask, ask one to you ask uh, you you go ahead because because it may it may spark a thought 
<laughs> hey, we, we, um, got, we got a couple things out there. We never even got into the difficulty adjustment algorithm and why you want to go back to the old one. There's, there's I can, I mean, I can keep going for a little bit. Oh, you can. Okay, then we'll be a little bit more, a little bit more generous. All right, TK, yes. hit him. Awesome. No, no, no. I, I want you to go into that. Let's just, let's just go. Okay. So you wrote an article about the DAA, the difficulty adjustment algorithm, which we discussed in, a, in our last video. Um, if I'm reading your article correctly, you think that uh, either it was a mistake originally, which I would I would have to hear you explain because I, from my understanding, if they didn't implement that, the there's no way the fork would have survived. Um, or you think it should go back, revert to the original algorithm where the difficulty resets every 2016 blocks instead of the one they have now where it resets much more frequently. Can you explain that a little bit more? So. What I was trying to argue is that there's been there's lots of arguments made by like Enchain or uh, BSV miners that you can't just switch back. And what I'm saying is, if you say that, that you're basically saying that you need X percent of hash rate with X amount of transactions before you can justify switching back. And to me, that is like is it's it's like it's like a planned economy, right? It's like you who came up with this math calculation, clearly know better than the market when to switch back. That was the point I was trying to make. Um, in terms of the fork, um, if you look at charts, there was a point where the hash rates were almost equal. Um, and then they added the difficulty adjustment. And if you read that whole article and watch that clip of Craig and Raina talking mm -hmm. about it, it, it's pretty, like, it's pretty mind-blowing that if they didn't implement it, like, that that EDA and now DAA basically has a price cap on BCH and BSV. It will always be in proportion to the hash rate. It will never rise above until the subsidy goes away, right? So the impacts that it ha has had are crazy. Yeah, so I, I, I wondered about that at the time. Like it seemed to me in my non-technical brain, like here's your chance to flip BTC. And... To all of a sudden change the algorithm so that the difficulty of mining your chain that's winning goes up and then nobody wants to, you know, the, then the hash moves back over. Now we're in a position where, tell me if I'm wrong, like, like I, I, pardon me, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I would love to have them have not introduced that new difficulty adjustment algorithm and just see what happens. Let's let the big block Bitcoin battle it out and let's, I think it would have won, but we'll see. But given that they did, and given we're at a place now where the hash rate is like whatever, 1% of what BTC's hash rate is, if you went back to the old one now, would it not destroy BSV? I don't think so. I mean, they would just, it would just adjust every 2,000 blocks. I mean, miners would just stay. The, 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 the volatility, though, wouldn't be like a huge problem? In terms of the rate, yeah, like having it, having it, you know, having the undulations be so uneven, where it spikes, and now it's like really profitable to you know mine for a long time, and then the difficulty adjusts, and then you don't, nobody wants to mine it again. So that it seems like the hash rate would be so wildly variable that that would leave like a security vulnerability. That's how it is now, but it's not as because it adjusts more frequently, the spikes don't last as long, right? So it's oh, like, I see. Uh, is, is that right? Yeah, like that. Yeah, that's correct. But okay. it it would be more steady, right? Because it would only adjust every uh, approximately two weeks. 
So you wouldn't have these because like there's there's so many times where BSV or BCH will go three hours without a block. Now that doesn't really cause too many issues, but depending on what you're doing, it can be an issue, right? Yeah, but but couldn't that cause an issue if the blocks are taking a, a much long if the difficulty takes much longer to adjust, couldn't you have a longer period of time now where we're waiting for we're waiting for blocks because yeah. the hash rate is 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 so wonky and now it takes two weeks to adjust? Right. But like the hash rate, that I guess that assumes that if they change the algorithm, that the hash rate would just go down, but it would just stay whatever the price is and the transaction volume. Yeah, I just remember like when we were looking at BCH, I mean, I'm not saying, I don't think that the change in the DAA was necessarily a good idea. Uh, I just remember it being really wonky where like we saw these crazy adjustments where there were like a long window of time where there were no blocks being found on the Bitcoin Cash network because uh, because of there was like the longer a longer difficulty adjustment time because it was locked into an unprofitable hash rate basically. But you're you're basically saying, hey, who cares? That'll work itself out over time. Let the market decide. Yeah. Every yeah. time you see the market doing something you don't like, you shouldn't go change the code to try to optimize it. I like I like your style. <laughs> no, I, I actually agree with him. I like the argument he made that like, and it is true, like, what's the precedent being set to, right? Like, if you change the algorithm every time it's not working properly for you, which is kind of what we're even seeing being talked about in Bitcoin Cash now, right? Like the discussion has, has become, maybe we need to change the DAA again. And that kind of constant manipulation uh, is, is uh, I think, a bad signal for investors uh, in, in Bitcoin Cash. Um, the fact well, that that can be changed so easily. You know, it's like when you look at financial markets and let's set aside all the bullshit ways that they're, you know, corrupted and infiltrated by governments, but just financial markets have all these really fascinating and complicated instruments and, and shorts and puts and options and all this stuff. And those all came about organically for the most part as a response to fluctuations because fluctuations are arbitrage opportunities. They're profit opportunities. And so you get these interesting innovations that smooth those out over time. Whereas if you look at it and say, oh no, the price is, is ping-ponging too much. We got to change. We got to get down to the protocol level. You know, we got to issue more stock quick or we got to issue more yeah. dollars. Or constantly we're, we're trying to optimize, right? Which is what the Fed tries to do. They try to optimize for stability, purchasing power stability or whatever it is instead of letting the markets just adjust, like markets adjust to the supply of gold. All of a sudden you find a sunken ship with a bunch of gold. There's an immediate spike and then it all adjusts. And then you've got people who are, you know, they know that someone's scuba diving. So they buy a futures contract, assuming there's a 20% chance they find a bunch of sunken treasure and the gold supply increases by some tiny amount or whatever. I'm, I'm making this up. But I think the idea that like, if you're like, hey, we haven't seen a block and it's been 12 minutes and I think 10 is optimal, quick, change the code, right? Like, yeah. Give let's the block work now. itself out and there'll be innovations you never even knew about and solutions can emerge from miners and from other businesses. Yeah, trying to, trying to plan the ideal level of, of profitability at any given moment or the ideal level of volatility is, is kind of a fool's errand too and doesn't work. And I think what you're saying is, is spot on that... Uh, we're actually killing potential innovative things by trying to plan this from a, a central point rather than letting people get creative about here's how the market's working. And in fact, like you said, volatility can actually be a good thing uh, because it does allow people who are willing to take 
uh, interesting bets to have disproportionate returns. Okay, I, I'm, we're talking. We're not giving you a chance to talk, Josh. But I'm just I'm getting hyped up here, and I got to add one more thing. It <laughs> it introduces not only a level of trust. Now you got to trust that the developers are going to make the best code changes, and, and a bunch of uncertainty. But what happens? They could adjust the difficulty if they don't like an outcome. But it it robs the you know it robs the capacity of miners and other parties to plan. So if you know the market is volatile. Now you start to try to plan around market volatility and come up with creative ways to manage that. But if you have this third party that at any given time, they could just come in and say, we're going to fix that volatility in a way that you can't foresee. You can't plan for it, right? You can, you can plan for spikes in, in, in hash rate because they, they perform according to market incentives that even if they're not predictable, they're rational. And so you can, you can know that there's a certain level of unpredictability that you can work around. But the unpredictability of a developer injecting themselves in, now it makes the whole protocol, anything you want to do on it, contingent on believing that some developers are going to do things that aren't bad for your business. And that's like really bad for your business. (laughs) Hey, Josh, when does BSV go back to the original DAA? And how do you see that affecting things? Back to the future. Whenever some central planner says it's okay. And that's what you object to. You just want them to, to just do it. Well, they, they won't do it. Um, ideally, the miners just decide to do it, right? That's the best case scenario. But given how passive they are, I mean, they're subsidized, right? So um, they're not going to do anything active until they need to. So I, I would imagine it would be, they would do it probably at an opportune, like an opportune time. So maybe like there's lots of volume. And then we say, hey, we're going to switch because we, we've got sustained transaction volume. Now's a good time. We'll just do it. So that's an interesting related point, the um, subsidy. Um, I think you mentioned it in your article, didn't you, about, about getting rid of the subsidy or something like that, like early? Did you ask that in your article, what, what would happen if you, just, if you just cut the subsidy off right now? I, no, I'm just bringing up the point. Like they, the, way, the reason they behave this way is because they're subsidized. Yeah. No, that's what I meant. I, I, I thought maybe it was another article. I, I read something where someone mentioned maybe like cutting off the subsidy and um, now early. And I, because I agree with your broader point, like that the subsidy is, is disincentivizing miners to act in their long-term interest right now. Right. I mean, because, and, and, and so they are passive. Like this is what we saw with, with core where they basically just take whatever code they're given as long as it doesn't threaten their subsidy, as opposed to thinking, well, what is this code actually going to do once the subsidy is gone. Right. Derek, what I think you're bringing up is in some of the, uh, the, the transaction processing articles, like the one with, uh, with Chan. Oh some, yeah. That was the one. Yeah. Some of the language there makes it sound as if, you know, there's some kind of plan or intention to eliminate the subsidy altogether. Like, like Calvin is talking, like it's going to be over. Do you just see that as like ambiguous speech exaggeration? <laughs> I think he's just saying that. It's a, I mean, it is a matter of time, right? Like, um, you know, it, up, up in four days, right? When we all become millionaires, um, supposedly, then uh, the B, the BTC miners will get theirs cut in half. So, what should happen, right? What should to me? And I, I wrote about this a few months ago. This is my prediction: is that price will keep creeping up, and then it's just gonna get hammered down, right? And at that point. Because their subsidy now is only 6.25 coins and the price should go down. 
then you'll start seeing, oh, miners are like, oh, I need to do something, right? I can't just use ASICs in my data center. I need to actually like build stuff that people want, make people want to send me their transactions. So Josh, what do you think the likelihood is that uh, those miners will will force the block size to be raised on BTC and do all the innovation on BTC? Or do you think that that's just a dead prospect and they're just going to switch to BSV? I think they're those those BTC miners. Uh, a lot of them are Chinese. I think all they, from my understanding, and this might be a limited one, all they care about is fiat. So they don't care about core cash, SV, whatever gives them the most money. In fact, uh, mempool that 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 pool specifically arbitrages the profitability between SV, BCH, and B, BTC. They do not care. All they want is more fiat. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I, 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 and I, I can see that too. I was just wondering, are they, because if they're holding, if they're still holding BTC, it just, it just strikes me that there's a lot of investment already in BTC. Yeah. And there's a lot of holders and that they're going to be resistant to any potential threat to their investment. And, and maybe to such an extent that like the miners would, that they would do things to incentivize miners on their chain at that point. Or maybe not. I mean, I don't know. I just, I just wonder whether it would be in the miners' best interest to just try to make BTC work because all the existing infrastructure already is there. That's that's a good question, but I I think that their narrative. I mean, it's like it it, it would kind of be like uh I guess a good example is like Trump, right? Like before he got in office, he was talking about all this free market stuff, and then in the Fed, and you know he knows good and well which one is correct, but yet he pitches the complete opposite now that he's in office, right? That's kind of the position the core people are in. How could they go back, right? How could they say, oh, actually, we were wrong. All that stuff we did the last five years, that, yeah, forget all that. We're going to raise it to eight megabytes, 16 megabytes. I think that would probably cause a fork on BTC, most likely. Yeah. Gosh, I, I still see the biggest threat to BSV being if BTC just finally decides to do the same thing and raise the block limit. I mean, their, their rhetoric is so strongly against it, which is what, you know, which is why I currently think BSV is, has the best chance. But if they decided to make that switch, um, to me, that's, that's the biggest outstanding threat. Uh, Another big part is there's been lots of optimizations made to be able to handle the um, clients. Now, Granted, they could just take the SV client that's out there and then just fork it for BTC. That'll probably be trivial. Um, but I, I think that they're so stuck in their ways. I, I, I could say, I think it would cause a fork, which would be really bad, right? Well, yeah, that would, if it caused a fork, like a serious, like permanent split, then that would be, that would kind of defeat the whole purpose of sticking with BTC. For me, for me the whole purpose of sticking with BTC is because of the existing network effect. Uh, in the existing network of investors. But right. if you split that, then it kind of starts to, to whittle down that value prop. And I guess I mean, we've already seen what a split looks like, right? Twice. Yeah, yeah. and what another one maybe looks like now with BCH too. So they're, they're <laughs> terrible. And anyone who encourages them like, like should, deserves to lose them. Oh, man. Uh, investor win. No, but there, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, there's a, there's a case for them. Like, what if we didn't have the fork and we were just stuck with a broken BTC? Like, okay, now we've got a chance that something works. And now, even though I would love just one version of Bitcoin to just win and get it over with, right? The fact that there's competitive forks uh, means that failure 
doesn't have to be total, that failure isn't necessarily failure and that there's still a chance it increases the, the odds of success in some way. I mean, it, it sucks, but I think it's better than, than having everything just decided. Everybody has to agree and we just always have one thing. Oh, like the exit well, option. You need as a last option. option as an, yeah, as a last option. But remember, BTC was, well, it, was, I mean, were, it, was, it was like three or four years of really, really intense attempts at trying to get an alternative client yeah. to core. So it was a long time. It wasn't like that was the first thing that was proposed. And the other thing too is that wasn't even the original goal. The original goal wasn't to have a permanent split. Uh, it got bastardized in the process. But the original goal with Segwit2x was to just take over the BTC chain with uh, and, and 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 have one chain. It wasn't to have multiple chains. Yeah, uh, no, I, I just think like the the release valve of secessionist movements for you know secession chains is is necessary. Well, maybe, but like money is all about, I mean, yeah, it's, it's necessary as like an, as a, as a last option, but money is about the a number of people who, who are willing to accept your money. And I mean, it has to be inclusive. And if it's, if you're constantly forking, there's no value in that. Yeah. But, but the market, the market tends to weed that out, right? I mean, it's just like the market for currencies right now. Like the fact that it is legally possible for other currencies than the dollar to exist is actually good for the dollar and for the world, right? Like the, the competitive pressure is a good thing. It's, it's network effects are huge and hard to overcome and it's very, very costly to compete with a network effect heavy incumbent. But the fact that it's possible to do so is vital. Yeah, it should be possible. I mean, it should be possible and legal. I mean, I just wonder like in a free market, like with gold being the currency, like how many comp- serious competitive currencies would there be? I mean, right now it's a little different, right? Because there's a, every government has their own legal tender law. Yeah, but the, that's the gun, a little bit the gun to the head changes things a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect there'll be phases where, and there have been in history, phases of bimetallism where either silver and gold, and then phases in some areas where silver is, or some other thing is demanded more than gold. But over the long term, like, there's usually a big network effect around some. I mean, it's like that in tech products, like, Google is still the dominant player, but you can use DuckDuckGo and other things. And there's no guarantee that Google will always be the dominant player in search. Um, but network effects are, are powerful. Yeah, I mean, this is different too, in the sense that this money can be changed by human hands and made more competitive. Whereas there are limitations to other currencies in the past, commodity currencies, like you couldn't change wampum shells that much. You know, and you couldn't change gold that much. I mean, there's coinage. Obviously, that can, can add some additional value. But um, there wasn't much you could do with it. You know, whereas now, I guess, there's more room for being competitive. Josh, you were nodding your head vigorously in favor of forking. Well, forks, I think, are a feature. Yeah, um, forks are a feature. It's just like, but it's not necessarily in your best interest to do it. Right. I totally, um, I've, I've always thought forks are a feature. Like people bitching about them in the sense of like, you're like a bad person if you fork. That's silly. But like, if you continue forking, you have no chance of ever having like a serious network of investors because you're just basically, it, it, it's also dangerous as an investor. Like even now we see a lot of businesses have suffered tremendously from the BCH BSV fork right. because they're forced to choose a side. Uh, and, and that's tough. Like there was a great article by the guy from memo.cash who talked specifically about this, how 
his whole entire business has suffered as a result. He actually has less transactions on Bitcoin Cash and BSV than he than he had previously with just Bitcoin Cash. Right. And and as an investor, like if you're if, as if you're building a business on a platform that's going to be half the network's going to go one way and half's going to go the other way, and that's going to keep happening in perpetuity. I mean, that's a really bad uh, value prop. Right. I mean, I felt the same way when the other one happened, but I think you have to choose. But also the only reason that the three exists is because their subsidies are still quite large, right? That's why the other ones have become irrelevant. Like yeah. Gold. Yeah, that's a good point. Like if you don't, if you don't have the subsidy, uh, you have to have enough transactions to survive. And if you have enough transactions to survive, by definition, you have enough value to survive and you must have some unique use case. Why would you have two if you, if you could just as easily have one unless there's right. something unique? And so there's, that's interesting. So do you think that this is like playing hypothetical here, counterfactual? If you were Satoshi and you know everything that you know now and you got to go back in time, would you have? dramatically reduced the block reward or phased it out more quickly? I don't, it's hard to say. I, I don't think so. I, I do think that it's just a matter of time. Like I think that. So this is just a necessary growing pains phase. Yeah, that's how I look at it. So the, the block reward doesn't just incentivize like people to, to invest. Cause that's like, it's like a, it's like a bootstrapping mechanism. It's also like a distribution mechanism because how do you distribute the coins without uh, a block reward well you can do a, a, a centralized distribution where you just pass them out you can do faucets which is pretty bad because those can be gamed and they're not really you know proof of work right i mean the, the block reward is a way of getting those initial coins out into the market in a way that is more capitalistic than the other options but you could have you could have potentially had a a more aggressive distribution schedule or uh, have happenings that happened every you know one year ish instead of four or something like that. I'm not saying that would be better or worse. Um, yeah, I, I think he it, mentioned he did. He wanted to match. I, th- I thought I thought I thought I read somewhere that he wanted to match, kind of something related to to gold or something like that. I don't. Yeah, like don't a, know, like no. a two percent range of annual inflation yeah. for gold. I mean, I as the, like that sounds familiar to me too, but I can't remember. As, as a funny kind of tidbit from history, I, I think it's just a bug. I don't think he ever intended this, but originally Bitcoin was perpetually inflating. There was like a bug so that, or, or maybe it was designed, I think it was a bug, that after you got down to the end of the block reward where it became like minuscule, it was like every 160 years or something like that, the block reward would completely return and you would go back to the original block reward. Really? Yeah, and they corrected that in like 2013 or 14. Yeah, there was something where the block reward would actually reset itself at the end, and I think it was just like a bug. I I don't remember. I don't I don't know enough about the technicalities. Isaac's got Craig Wright conspiracies floating through his head now about original Bitcoin. <laughs> so Craig is going to live 160 years, and no. Um, no, that, that's, that's very interesting. Um, all right, we should bring this home. TK, now's your chance. Get that, get that final question in. Josh, I, you, you made this statement to me when we talked live and you included it in your recent article on the DAA. I'd like, I like you to expound on what this means. You said, basically, when Craig created the Genesis block, 
No, you, you yeah. Basically, when Craig created the Genesis block, it was over. Yeah. So like, what the because the subsidy dwindles, right? And you the you have to adhere to the protocol, right? Or else it's something that's different than Bitcoin, right? So because and Isaac touched on this earlier, when the subsidy dwindles and it just goes away, you need there has to be only one. It's either one or zero, right? That can actually survive with. And I'll qualify it with the full kind of use cases, right? Because one of the bigger arguments that I've actually heard from Craig about um, against multiple Bitcoins is like, if, you're, if you start doing titles and identities on chain, you can't have two, right? Because that's that on, like, okay, um, I got my house title on, on the chain and then there's a fork. Do I have two houses? Can I sell both of them on both chains? And then I get the Bitcoins on both chains. Like, that's just ridiculous, right? So um, I, I think that because as a subsidy drives towards zero, it only, it, like the market will allocate the transactions towards one. And what it, whichever one that is, it might be one of the three now. It might be some future fork in the, uh, later. But that's the one that will keep going. All right. I'm breaking the rule. I'm getting in another last one (laughs) because something that we've talked about a lot with great contention is this whole protocol lockdown business. Oh yeah. And I wish Steve was here for this too. But one of the things that's been, you know, hashed out over and over again is that there's nothing you can do unless you just dogmatically and irrationally believe that code is law to technically lock down the protocol. So I, I, I feel like you've given the most sensible explanation of this for me. To you, what does it mean to say that the BSB protocol is locked down? So I think there's two parts. To answer that, my definition is as long as it's to where people or businesses, miners, devs don't have to radically alter something in their whatever to account for what the devs or the miners did. If that's the case, then that's that that is effectively a protocol lockdown, right? So like if you don't add any opcodes or you don't change, deprecate old, uh, existing opcodes, then you don't affect an existing dev or, or miner. To me, that's like, a, for the people building on it, that's what they should be concerned about. Um, however, I will say that it's very clear that they have done a horrible, by they, I mean the people pitching protocol lockdown, have done a horrible job at managing expectations because it is not a protocol lockdown. Right. If you change the DAA, that's a protocol change. Now that, however, that doesn't affect any businesses. Right. If I have anything running on BSV and they change the DAA, I'm not affected at all. Right. Really? Because it, it might. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't if it causes difficulty adjustments to be more dramatic? Couldn't it affect how your business works? If, especially if you're reliant on zero comp, for example. Wouldn't it be the case that now you're you're, you've got transactions taking really long time to put in the blocks. Um, Shatters brought up an interesting point. I think he did an interview with Ryan maybe in January where he said that because of zero comp being as good, almost as good as in a block that, and then you have three chains, right? So you got uh, lots of hash rates sitting out there. The more a chain fills up with transactions, the you, you now incentivize a miner to come over and mine that block. So like, yes, in theory, you could have a million block uh, of unconfirmed transactions, right? But someone's going to come mine it because they want the money in those uh, transactions. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, if that, that 
if the difficulty, if the, if the transactions aren't going through and a bunch are building up, then someone wants to come claim that. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's interesting. Um, but I agree with your general point. I think you're spot on that the, um, the difficulty adjustment is a pretty major change still. So it's, it's not really locked down yet. It's, it's like the, for the read the, the reasons that stability matter to businesses for those reasons, it's like optimized for stability at the business layer the protocol later may or may not have to change, but the idea is like it's it's a it's a sales point and it's a good sales point. It's a framing point that this is what we are optimizing for is stability. We're not optimizing for what coders think it should be. We're optimizing for what businesses are using it for, um, which I think is very salient. But it from a like, you know, technical standpoint, it's not technically locked down and I, and I think that's important that you're not making you know silly claims but it's at the end of the day like whatever rhetoric wins aren't, you, aren't you then still like because even that, that strikes me to me as i guess it's effectively locked down but it also strikes me as very much reliant on the human beings who are making those decisions about what is stability for business and what's not um I mean, what if they just decide that this changes they're the one i mean how are they getting that kind of information from the market about what what is bad for business and what's good for business, you know? Um, like ultimately, we're still reliant on them and their definition, right? Yeah. Or is there anything keeping them in check besides that? Any legal? I mean, are there, are there contractual obligations Hopefully, as the node developers? Like, I guess that's the other part is the, the miners... I mean, they're subsidized. I keep saying this, but like, I almost want to say something very negative, but like, they're so passive, man. It's disgusting. It's like, <laughs> man, like, but I get it, right? It's like, it's just like someone on welfare, right? If you're getting a $1,000 check in the mail, why go work? That's how the miners are. Now, granted, they've invested all this money in the ASICs and stuff, but um, eventually- but you're, you're saying once, once they're only making money off of transactions, they will be like, optimize for maximum transactions period and yes. by optimizing for that they are essentially providing stability because you know that whatever is done on bsv it will be done to maximize transactions yeah 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 i, I think that's a great point um and you don't need to worry about insulting the miners here we've talked about that before how we we've all sort of been disappointed in the <laughs> passivity of the miners Man. because it felt like it felt like they should act more rationally in their interests than they have in the past in tolerating some of the stuff they've tolerated. Their, their, their window of self-interest seems surprisingly short-term. Very, very. Um, I, some people might not like what I'm about to say. I, I, I was looking at a, a what's on chain maybe last night and I saw like 80,000 unconfirmed transactions. And I sat there watching B, via BTC who is a primarily a B BCH miner, they're the ones mining these medium blocks with like 20K transactions. I'm like, where's all the transaction processors? It's like, where are all the people talking big shit on Twitter? Where are y'all at, right? I'm not mining anything. They just get the subsidy, man. Like, that's that's all they care about. They're not even mining big blocks. And until that subsidy goes down, you know, like I said, man, hopefully this having, you know, hopefully we all don't become millionaires. The price drops, and now they, they have to start being capital. Yeah, there's there's a lot of talk on Twitter, and it's pretty off putting. So it's nice to hear you. It's nice to hear you talk about it <laughs> as well, because uh, 
I, I see it and you know, uh, I find it very frustrating sometimes. <laughs> that, that is a hot take to end on right there, Josh. I love that. Like, Hey, talking, talking shit about processing transactions. I don't yeah. see you processing anything. <laughs> I love it, dude. Hey, thanks so much for joining us, man. This was a lot of fun and uh, keep up the good work. Look forward to seeing your projects. Thanks, man. This is great. I enjoyed it.